um, we're in Genesis 38. Let's again just pray and ask the Lord to bless our time in his word. And so, Father, we just thank you, Lord. Uh, we, we are amazed as we just consider the great power, Lord, that your word is. You tell us that your word is like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. Lord, you said that it's living, that it's powerful, that it's sharp, that it divides. You said that your word is life. And you said it sanctifies, you said it cleanses, it instructs, it changes us, and it prospers in the thing that you sent it to accomplish. So, Father, as we approach your word, we do it in reverence for you, we do it in uh, dependence upon your Holy Spirit to be our teacher, we do it with open heart, Lord, with honesty of heart. We recognize our unworthiness and our great need, and Lord, we desire so much more than an academic exercise tonight. We want to hear you, Lord, and, uh, and we're here with the intent of obedience and, and of having our hearts changed, Lord. So please make this time real, Lord. We pray for your anointing to be upon each one of us, and we thank you, Father, for uh, what you do and for who you are most of all. And so we ask these things tonight in Jesus' name, amen. We're in Genesis chapter 38 in our Bible study. We began... Uh, 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 the final and last segment of our study in the book of Genesis last week in chapter 37, uh, looking at the life of Joseph. And uh, what's interesting is that as we come to chapter 38 this week, we have a chapter inserted right into this segment of Genesis where Joseph is not even mentioned. Uh, he has absolutely nothing to do with this chapter that's before us here tonight at all. And uh, many Bible scholars, many Christians throughout the years have um, wondered about the placement of this chapter. Is, is it where it belongs? Is it out of place? Why is it here? And uh, I believe that God very carefully put his word together, that he didn't make any mistakes uh, in, in the way that he inspired it, in the way that he arranged it. And I believe that he put it here on purpose for us. And I believe that uh, it, this chapter serves two great purposes for the believer and for the person who wants to understand uh, the things of God. Um, one of those things does connect with Joseph, and the other one uh, kind of does not. And the one is that what this chapter does is that it presents to us uh, an amazing, clear contrast between two brothers in the same family. Because as we look at chapter 38, we're going to kind of be looking at the life of Judah, who was one of Joseph's older brothers, um, and quite a different character uh, than the man Joseph. And so God put this chapter here right next to and sandwiched in between these chapters where we're getting to know Joseph, and it serves an incredible contrast to us uh, concerning the character of these young men and in that, I believe there's an exhortation. I believe that um, God throughout the Bible is, is constantly telling us that it's worth it to live according to his ways. He gives us the free will to do what we want, but he tells us to choose the right way and that because there's advantages to it. And as we look at the choices that Judah makes, and we contrast them with the choices that Joseph makes, and then we see the destiny of the two brothers, at least in their earthly um, experience, it is an amazing instruction to us as that God's ways are the right ways. And when he tells us something, he's telling us for our good and for our favor. The other reason why this chapter is here is because Judah... Uh, the, 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 the man Judah and his descendant, his line, is extremely important in the scriptures because it will be through the line of Judah that the Messiah will come into the world. 
Jesus will come as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so uh, without this chapter, we would never have some of the connecting dots that bring the messianic line from Jacob to Jesus in the way that we do. Uh, And in it, there's an amazing um, picture of God's grace. And so chapter 38, and we may touch on the first six verses of chapter 39. I'm determined not to keep you here late tonight, so we'll see how uh, all of that plays out. But we look at chapter 38, and it tells us at the beginning in verse 1, it says that it came to pass at that time. And so uh, we're given the perspective of when the events of this chapter begin to take place, and and it's at the time that Joseph was betrayed and then sold as a slave to the Egyptians. And it was right about the timing when all of that went down, when Joseph, uh, his coat was stripped from him for the first time. It's going to happen again uh, in chapter 39. But the coat of many colors was stripped from him. It was dipped in the blood of a goat. It was brought back to Jacob, and, and they, the brothers said to their father, you discern, and we found this out in the field, and you know, some evil beast must have gotten to whoever owned this coat, and Jacob goes on believing then that Joseph is dead, and so it was about that time that these events now take place, and it says that Judah, who was um, the fourth son of Leah, and the fourth son of Jacob, It says that he went down from his brothers. And so uh, at this point, Judah kind of says, you know what, I've kind of had it with being around my brothers and and in my father's house for a season. I need to break away. And so he's going to go about eight miles north of where they're living at the time. And it says that he turned in to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. Now, the, the area of Adulam is not far from Jerusalem, and it's in the territory that will one day become Judah, the tribe of Judah in the land of Israel. And so he kind of uh, migrates into this area, and he becomes friends with this Canaanite uh, pagan man whose name is Hira. And it says that Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. Now, we don't know if Shua was the father's name or the daughter's name. Uh, Most likely it's the father, but we're not absolutely certain on that. And it says that he took her and he went in unto her. So not only has Judah at this point in his life kind of had enough with his brothers and his father's house, he's also kind of had enough of this whole God thing. And that's kind of the attitude that Judah has at this time. He no doubt knows Uh, the significance of his family line. He's going to appreciate it a little bit later on in his future, maybe even a little bit later on in this chapter. But at this point in his life, he's saying, enough of my family, enough of the church, enough of God, I'm done with it. And he goes, he starts hanging out with unbelievers. He takes a pagan wife, Abraham, Isaac, had gone to great lengths to see to it that This family line is preserved, not intermingled with Canaanites, but at this point, Judah doesn't care about any of that. And so he takes this Canaanite woman, and a very dysfunctional marriage uh, with her begins. Now, the language, if you kind of look at it, it kind of 
uh, implies, though we don't know for certain, that he didn't actually marry her, but that he just kind of uh, begins a relationship with her. Um, She's going to be called his wife later on, but at this time it just says that he took her and that he went unto her. It does not say that she became his wife or he took unto him a wife of the daughter. He just takes this woman. He says, I like you, uh, and let's just um, begin a relationship together. And so it says that in verse 3, she conceived and she bare a son, and he, that is Judah, the father, called his name Ur. And so the firstborn son of Judah uh, named Ur, it means watcher or watchman. And then it says that she conceived again and bare a son. And now notice the language, and it says that she called his name Onan. Now, uh, the secondborn son, we see that there's been a shift. Now, biblically, uh, culturally even, in these times, it would be the father's place and the father's responsibility to give the name to the son. And for some reason, we're going to see that the second and the third sons of Judah are named by the wife. And in fact, we're going to see that by the time the third son comes around, they're probably separated. They're living in different places. And so there's extreme dysfunction that we're going to see, not in the marriage only, but we're going to see also in the lives of these two young men. Now again, what we learn from the Bible are God's ways. And God always tells us that if we do things his way, that we can expect that there's going to be blessing and that there's going to be uh, ease. And I mean, not that we're going to have an easy life, but things are going to play out the way that they're supposed to be. But when we exercise our free will to go contrary to the ways of God, then we can expect that things are going to become dysfunctional and they're not going to work out the way that we want. And Judah begins and builds a relationship upon an extremely faulty foundation here. He doesn't do things God's way. He doesn't marry someone who is like-minded spiritually with the plan and destiny that God has for him and his family. And he doesn't marry her in a way that is pleasing to God. He just does this completely contrary to it. And we see that it unravels very quickly. Interestingly, uh, we see that Judah, as things begin, he takes that Um, patriarchal stance, and he names his son. But then by the second time, the second son, now we see that uh, um, the woman, whether it's Shua or the daughter of Shua, this woman takes control kind of of the raising of the kids, and she says, no, I'm going to name this one, and I'm going to hold on to the control of things uh, from this point going forward. There's an interesting dynamic that exists between the lines here that uh, does play out in real life even today. God tells us when we are um, coming to that age or when we're getting into a relationship, he tells us that we're to wait until we're married to consummate marriage relationships, that we're not to have sex before or outside of a marriage covenant and a marriage commitment. That is where we've made a commitment to one another before God in the presence of witnesses till death do us part. And, and, and God tells us that, not because he's trying to um, take away our joy or be restrictive in some way, but God's doing it because he knows how we work. He knows that male and female were made to be united and that there's more that happens in a sexual union than just bodies coming together and experiencing pleasure. That there is a dynamic there that, that, that changes and has consequences to future events. And what often happens when a couple 
dismisses God's ways and disobeys God's ways in that is that there are consequences and effects on the other side of a marriage commitment that show themselves and manifest themselves. And one of those things is that there's a trust issue and a leading issue that can happen in the heart of a woman wherein somewhere under the surface, whether she knows it or not, there's a realization that if this man wasn't willing to obey God and lead the right way before the marriage, then I can't be confident that he knows what he's doing, that he's trustworthy or competent to lead the family in the things of God after the marriage. And so what will happen oftentimes in that situation is that the wife in that family will usurp the role of leadership in the home and take charge over things. He can't handle this. He can't do it. So I'm going to do it. And, 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 you know, nothing in a woman that says she's not able to do those things, but it's not the role and the way that God has established the family to function properly. Well, we see hints of that happening here. Judah begins things on a faulty foundation. We see then the marriage and then also the raising of the kids. Things begin to fall apart very quickly. And so uh, it says in verse 5 that she yet again conceived and bare a son, and she called, so she names again, his name Shelah. Now, I, I'm tempted to say Sheila, but that doesn't sound right. A boy named Sheila, that kind of sounds like a boy named Sheila to me. So we'll call him Shela. <laughs> and it says that he was at Kalzeb when she bare him. And so there's a separation uh, in, in physical locations between Judah and his wife at the time that the thirdborn uh, comes. And it says that, that Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, whose name was Tamar. Now, don't you love how God in the Bible just skips like 18 years in like one white line? You're like, wait a minute, he just had this kid. Now the kid's getting married. Jacob is going from a son to a, or a father to a grandfather in the space of exactly one verse. But just so that we understand the perspective of the timing of things as it concerns these events in this chapter, you remember that Joseph was sold into Egypt when he was 17 years old. Now, when Joseph is 30 years old, that's when he's going to be brought before the Pharaoh. So 13 years will pass between Joseph's sale and Joseph's exaltation. And then seven years of plenty. I know I'm getting ahead of the narrative, but I'm trusting that most of you at least know the story. So seven years of plenty that will then be followed by the seven years of famine, which is during that time that all of these events kind of conclude and come together in the whole thing. So if Ur is born after Joseph is already in Egypt, and now Ur is old enough to get married, then timing-wise, what that tells us is that we're getting pretty close to the time when Judah and his brothers will have to go back to Egypt in order to buy grain from Joseph. And so time has passed here. Ur is grown up. He's going to um, bear a son. And, and uh, the timing of things is very close now, really, to the end of Joseph's story chronologically. And so it says that um, he took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, whose name was Tamar. So the wife of Judah's daughter's name is Tamar, and she's going to become a central figure in the story. And it says that Ur 
Judah's firstborn was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord slew him. Now, please, Father, next time you write a book, give me more than that. Because this is not something that happens too frequently on the pages of Scripture. That someone is just wicked, and God says, you're done. And, and, and you know, I got enough to worry about, right, in, in life. You know? and, 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 I, and, and like, okay, God, could you give me a little bit more than that? Like, what did he do? Okay, because whatever that was... I don't want to do that. You know, I've known a lot of wicked people that God didn't say, you know what, he just crossed the line, boom, outer darkness for you, you know. And I look at the scripture and I see a King Nebuchadnezzar. I look at the scriptures and I see Haman. I look at the scriptures and I see some incredible wickedness that God tolerates. And I wonder what is it that was going on in the life of this young man that would cause God to say, he's too much of a corrupting influence, even for the Canaanites, he's got to go. But for you and I, it gives us a little bit of perspective when we look at it in the lens of all of Scripture, of just what kind of a person this young man Ur was. There's a book by John Bunyan, who wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, one of the Puritan writers from the 1600s, um, and it's called Heaven and Hell. And I, I really like John Bunyan. I love The Pilgrim's Progress. And um, my wife bought me a bunch of his books one year. And one of them was this book, um, Heaven and Hell. And, and I kind of, um, I read it and I kind of felt like maybe this is a plate, uh, you know, what's that called? Um, it's a counterfeit. Like he didn't really write it. It's not really kind of his style. But it's a very interesting book nevertheless. And it was really kind of the story of just uh, two allegorical people. And one of them was called Mr. Badman. And as I read this thing, it just like brought me to this place of saying, God, I, I, never, I, I never want one of my kids to be like one of, one of these. You know? But I get the sense that that's the kind of person that Ur was. Just from the time, from the womb, there was just nothing in this kid but pure wickedness. And it says that God took him. And so it says that Judah then said to Onan, which is the secondborn son, he said, go in unto your brother's wife and marry her and raise up seed to your brother. Now, later on, this is going to actually become Mosaic law. In Leviticus or Deuteronomy chapter 25, it's called the law of the Leverite. It was cultural, it was an ethical principle that was followed before the law of Moses, which we're seeing referenced here. What it essentially was is that if you, as a man, married a woman, and then you died before you were able to have children, then it would be the familial duty of the next brother in line to marry your wife and to have a child with her, and that firstborn child would be legally the heir of the deceased firstborn. And the purpose of that was to continue the name and to keep the family line going. It was called the law uh, of the Leverite. And there were some practical reasons for doing that. It would, um, it would, it would um, cause people to um, have a little bit of accountability when they were making choices of spouses, I mean, if you were going to marry someone, your brothers would take a serious interest in making sure that you were marrying a good type of person, you know, because there's a very good possibility that I might end up with her at some point, you know, and it was just, there was some practical wisdom in the thing, 
but it was mainly in the sight of God to preserve the name of someone who died without an heir. And so it was God's way of maintaining lines, and especially in this family, it's of the utmost importance because we know that Judah is going to be the one through whom the Messiah will come. His family line and the name of his family line is extremely important. And so this is of great concern to God. And so Judah says to the secondborn, go into your brother's wife and raise up seed unto your brother. Now, verse 9, it says that Onan knew that the seed would not be his. And so it came to pass that when he went in unto his brother's wife, that he spilled it on the ground, lest he should give seed unto his brother. Now, uh, in the Hebrew language, the implication is that this was continual. That in other words, he took Tamar and he used her for the sake of sexual pleasure, but that he was very careful not to impregnate her. And the reason why he didn't want to impregnate her was not because he didn't want children or the responsibility of a family, but it was specifically because he knew that what son was conceived would not be considered his and that any inheritance of Judah, any double portion, any family uh, responsibility or blessing that would be given would be given to this son and not to him. He would not become the new firstborn in a sense. And so what he was doing was despising any portion of the will of God that there might be in preserving his brother's name, and he's despising uh, this law of the Leverite um, by doing this. And so it tells us in verse 10 that the thing which he did displeased the Lord, wherefore he slew him also. Now, some have taken this verse and they have made it anti-birth control. That, okay, well, God is against birth control because here this guy did something to prevent a birth and that that displeased God. The problem with that is that we're told that the thing which he did was that he despised raising up seed unto his brothers. This isn't an exhortation about birth control, but rather it's family um, plotting not family planning, you know, and there's a big difference between the two. He's, he's maneuvering on things. Now, concerning birth control and the concept of that, the Bible is absolutely silent. The Bible teaches that you and I, that we have been made in the image of God. And in God's image, we have been given procreative powers. Now, God has creative powers. And God, in his creative powers, he began creating at a certain point. He created for six days, and then he said, I'm done creating now. He had the ability, if he wanted to, to create indefinitely. He could still be creating, but he created for six days, and then he stopped. And God gives you and I, in our free will, the ability to seek him, and the ability to make those decisions between us and our spouse as to how much creation we want to uh, partake in as it relates to our procreative powers. And that's something that's between us and God and our capacity that he's given to us, the desires that he's given to us, the plans that he has for us. And beyond that, we're at liberty to seek him and to do as we are led by him as it relates to the size of our families. 
And we're not to feel as though we're, 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 we're uh, you know, worthy of being judged or looked down upon because we have more or less kids. That's something that's between us and God, and he gives us the liberty in his word uh, to work out those issues with him. And so this isn't about birth control. This is about a despising of the plan of God in this most important family that will one day bring forth the Messiah. Well, it says in verse 11, and everything um, is kind of uh, setting the stage for verse 11. It says that then said Judah to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, who's now a widow twice over. He says, remain a widow at your father's house until Shelah, my son, be grown. For he said, lest perhaps he die also as his brothers did. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. So uh, Shelah, the youngest, is not of marrying age yet. And Judah uses that as an excuse, we're told. And then tells uh, um, this woman, Tamar, to go and just live in her father's house. But Judah thought, man, I, I lost two. I ain't risking the third so, you know, hopefully she just forgets. And he's like, we'll buy some time here um, on things. And so she, she does that. Well, verse 12. It says that in the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died. And Judah was comforted and went up unto his sheep shearers to Timnath, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And so at this point, she is his wife. She dies, and Judah is kind of now free. He goes back and hangs out with Hira, the Adulamite. And it was told Tamar, saying, Behold, your father-in-law goes up to Timnath to shear his sheep. And so she, that is Tamar, put on her widow's garments off from her, and she covered her with a veil, and she wrapped herself and sat in an open place, which is, by the way, to Timnath. For she saw that Shelah was grown and that she was not given unto him to wife. Now we see that Tamar has some respect for the family and for the birthright and a faith in what that's to be. And she knows the type of person that Judah is, that he's not going to give her uh, the, 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 the youngest son. And so she kind of takes things into her own hands here. And it says in verse 15 that when Judah saw her, he thought her to be a harlot or a prostitute because she had covered her face. And so she kind of puts on the attire. She begins to play the role of a prostitute. She knows the type of, of guy that Judah is, that he's given over to these types of things. And so she puts herself in a place where he can be tempted and she tempts him in this way. And it says that he turned unto her by the way. And he said, go to, I pray thee, and let me come in unto you. So he approaches her and he makes a proposition to this daughter-in-law of his who's playing the role of a prostitute. For he knew not that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, what will you give me that you may come in unto me? And he said, I, I will send you a kid from the flock. And she said, well, what will you give me as a pledge until you send it? Well, how do I know that you're going to actually follow through? Give me some kind of a down payment, some kind of collateral. And so he said, well, what pledge will I give? What do you want? And she said, I want your signet, and I want your bracelets, and I want the staff that is in your hand. And he gave it to her, and he came in unto her, and she conceived by him. 
And so we see that Judah, this man who is now grown, but still very much in his prime, is drawn aside, he's given to sexual temptation, and here he yields. And one of the most amazing things concerning this episode and this issue, as we see it put here in Scripture, is that God is, is able in just one verse to give to us the reason why he forbids such things and to explain to us the damage that such things cause in the life of a man. He says, what will, what will you take from me? What will I be giving up, in a sense, if I do this thing? If I'm to take you and have you, what is it that you want to take from me, prostitute, seductress, woman that I'm not married to? And she says, oh, not much. Really, at the end, just a kid of the goats. But in the meantime, I'll take three things from you. I will take, first of all, the signet. What is the signet? The signet is the chief mark of your identity. It would be the thing that would identify him by name and by family. It would be the thing that he would press into a contract, an agreement. It was his name. It was his reputation. It was his identity. It was all that represented him as a man in the form of a relic. And she said, I'm going to take your identity. You want me outside of the terms of God? What is it going to cost? Number one, it's going to cost your identity. It's going to cost your reputation. It's going to cost your name, your good name. I'm going to take that from you. Secondly, I want your bracelet. The bracelet would speak of his possessions. It would also speak of the thing that would bind his signet to his person. I'm going to take your possessions as well. You're going to have to put that on the line. If you want to risk this secret relationship and think that you'll just be able to get away with it and walk away without any scar, well, you're going to put your possessions on the line, the riches, the gold that's around your wrist. And then thirdly, she says, the staff that is in your hand. What is the staff? Well, for Judah and for this tribe of shepherds, it represented his occupation, his livelihood. It represented who he was and his skill as a man, as a person. And she said, you're going to put that on the line as well. And understand this, human being, is that any time you walk outside of God's ways, especially in this thing, you are not simply paying money or experiencing quick free pleasure that has no cost attached to it. What you are doing is you are taking everything that represents who you are as a soul and as a person, the value of your life, and you are throwing it up in the air, hoping that somehow it's going to land back in your hands again. And as is the case for Judah, would also be the case for anyone else, is that it is not going to happen. Judah is going to lose these three most precious things. Because this woman doesn't want a kid from the goat. The Bible says that the adulteress will seek for the precious life. In fact, let me read to you a segment of Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6, beginning in verse 26. It says, For by means of a whorish woman, a man is brought to a piece of bread, and the adulteress will hunt for the precious life. In other words, this kind of a thing will root out all of your substance. It says, can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? 
Now, that's an amazing verse. You should highlight it and remember it. Because the bosom of a man is the secret place. It's the inside part where no one can see. And you could essentially put something in there or take something in there and no one will ever see it because it's in the inside. It's in the secret place. And can the fire of lust be brought into the secret place of a man? You bet. But can that happen? And notice what it says, and his clothes not be burned. Now, what are the clothes? The clothes are the external, outermost part that everyone can see. In other words, you put it on the inside and you think it's hidden and no one will know. But what the Bible is saying is that the fire that begins in the heart will expose itself and everything will be seen even in the external. It will be known. Can one go upon hot coals and his feet not be burned? So he that goeth in to his neighbor's wife, whosoever touches her shall not be innocent. Men do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his soul when he's hungry. But if he's found, he'll restore sevenfold. He will give all the substance of his house. But, and here's in contrast to that, whoso committeth adultery with a woman lacks understanding. He that doeth it destroys his own soul. The value and the entity of what you are as a person will be affected. And God knows it. And thus he warns against it. She says, oh, what's it going to cost? It's going to cost your identity. It's going to cost your possessions. It's going to cost your position. Your reputation, your livelihood, your well-being. Oh, you want it? You can have it. But don't be deceived. It's going to cost you everything. She came, he came in unto her, and it says that she conceived by him. And so she arose and went away, and she laid by her her veil from her, and she put on the garments of her widowhood. And Judah sent the kid by the hand of his friend, the Adulamite, he's a man of great integrity, (laughs) to receive his pledge from the woman's hand, but he found her not. And then he asked the men of that place, saying, where is the harlot that was openly by the wayside? And they said, there was no harlot in this place. And so he returned to Judah, and he said, I cannot find her. And also the men of the place said that there was no harlot in this place. And so Judah said, let her take it to her, lest we be shamed. Now, isn't that interesting? He knew it was wrong. He knew that what he was doing wasn't the right thing to do. Now, he justified it. Oh, my wife was taken from me. My, the one I had is gone now. And so this is okay. I'm not legally married. I'm not legally bound. He justified the action. But inside, all the while, he knew that what he was doing was wrong. He said, well, I sent this kid, and you've not found her. And so it came to pass about three months after, and trust me, it doesn't take long for consequences to come, does it? That it was told Judah, saying, hey, Tamar, thy daughter-in-law, has played the harlot. And also, behold, she is with child by whoredom. And Judah said, bring her forth and let her be burnt. Burn her at the stake. What a hypocrite, right? Isn't it amazing how bad our sin looks on someone else? It's true, isn't it? I mean, think about it in your own experience. When you meet someone or talk to someone that struggles with a sin that isn't really a struggle for you, what's your attitude like toward that person? It's generally compassion, grace, understanding, encouragement. 
They come and tell you something that's totally not a struggle. You say, it's all right. God can forgive you. God is for you. He's, he's not against you. He's the help, you know, and, and all. But then you meet someone who struggles with a sin that you struggle with. They, you find out they do something that's a temptation to you or an area of your struggle. What's our tendency? You idiot. You filthy, wretched sinner. Can you believe what this person... We go home and tell our spouse, you know what I heard today about this person? You know, and our attitude, it's funny, isn't it? Our sins. Why are we so often so hard on our kids? You know why? Because they're just like we are. It's, a, it's an issue. It's a human problem. So Judah says, bring her forth and let her be burnt. And it says that when she was brought forth, she sent to her father-in-law. I love this part. There's something cynical in me. I love it. I don't want it to happen to me, but I want to hear about it. <laughs> she said, well, okay, I'll come to the stake, but it's by the man whose these are that I am with child. And she said, discern, I pray thee, whose are these, this signet and these bracelets and this staff? Because this is the man, the man who owns these things. Do you recognize these things, Mr. Judah? I mean, Dad? <laughs> and Judah acknowledged them and said, She has been more righteous than I, because I gave her not to Sheila, my son. No, 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 Judah, you're missing the point. That's not why she's been more righteous than you. But we'll take it for now. And it says that he knew her again no more. Well, it came to pass in the time of her labor, her childbirth, that behold, twins were in her womb. And it came to pass when she travailed or labored that the one put out his hand. Now, that's different than breach, right? I mean, this is not easy labor. I mean, this one's sideways, right? The arm comes out. And the midwife took and bound upon his hand a scarlet thread, saying, This came out first. He is legitimately the firstborn. He came out. And then it came to pass that as he drew back his hand, uh, I, I've been in the delivery room five times, and I have witnessed five births, and they're never pretty. I mean, that is not, it's just not a scene that I like. I do not like the, that part of a hospital. It's just, I I. That's enough. Anyways, there is something going on in this woman's womb, okay, that if Vince McMahon and the World Wrestling Federation could get the corner on, they would own the market for eternity, right? This is the mother of all wrestling matches because there's twins. One of them comes out, and the other one goes, oh, no, I don't think so, and... Kind of, you know, like, like the Royal Rumble. One is about to go out, and the other guy grabs him by the hair and he's like, no, 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 no. And what's this woman going through in the whole thing? She's like, please, please give me the epidermal. I was going to go natural. I ain't going natural, you know. It says, it says that she bound it. He drew his hand back in that, behold, then his brother came out, and she said, how have you broken forth? This breach be upon you, therefore his name was called Pharez. And afterward came out his brother that had had the scarlet thread upon his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Now, Pharez means uh, breach or broken through because he broke through and kind of like won the match, you know, won the race, if you would. <clears throat> 
Uh, Zerah means scarlet because he was the firstborn. He's the one that had the scarlet cord around uh, his, his wrist. Now, the, you know, we would just kind of read this or this could have just happened in history and we wouldn't even know about it. And probably it wouldn't even be worthy of scripture except for the fact that this is an extremely important bloodline as it relates to the coming of the Messiah. And it's probably, this is probably the very reason why this chapter is in the Bible at all, because of this. Because what we're going to discover when we come to uh, see the genealogy of Jesus Christ himself is that it will be through the line of Tamar and Perez, this breach, this secondborn that insisted on being the firstborn, that it will be through him and through his line that the Messiah will come into the world. And so the breach that he was was not simply that he came out ultimately first and he beat his brother to the punch. But rather what the breach is in the mind of God is that this one worked his way into the familial genealogy of Jesus Christ. That's the breach, the bigger breach on things. And it's an amazing thing to consider. You know what's remarkable about this? Is that when you read that genealogy in Matthew and in Luke, you'll see Tamar's name written in both places. This woman Tamar, this Canaanite, this woman who had no legitimate call or right, entitlement to be in that line, to be in that position, that she actually became a part of that family. As you read further in those genealogies, you'll be interested to find that there's some other names there. Not only is the name Tamar there, who played the, the role of a prostitute, but you'll also see the name Rahab. You remember who Rahab was? She was also a Canaanite, and she was a prostitute. She lived in the city of Jericho and had a place on the wall. She hid the spies when they came. Rahab married a man from the tribe of Judah whose name was Salman, who also then was in that same lineage. He was the great-great-grandfather of a man whose name would be King David. There's another name in that genealogy. Her name would be Ruth, also not an Israelite. She was a Moabite. The Moabites were an abomination to the Lord. God, in fact, said through Moses that no Moabite can even enter the assembly or the congregation of the Lord until the fourth generation. And yet Ruth became a breach. Her name and the family line, she came into the family of Jesus Christ. And so on and so on it goes. You see these people that were brought in. There's another one. Her name was Bathsheba. Most likely a Hittite, again a Canaanite. She was an adulteress who, with King David, produced, sired a child whose name would be Solomon, who also would be in that same family line in that genealogy. Interesting, the people that God chooses to include in his family, those whom Jesus would be honored to have his name attached to. It's amazing to me when you think about it, Sarah's not mentioned in that genealogy. Leah, Rachel, Rebecca, none of those names appear anywhere in it. Tamar. Bathsheba, Ruth, Rahab. That's why the Bible says that Jesus will be a light to the Gentiles. As you look through the pages in the history of Scripture, it's amazing to see those whom have breached their way into the family of God. I think of Gideon the coward. 
the one who was too afraid to go even by himself. And he, God said, I'm going to let him into my family, not only so, but I'm going to use him. I'm going to use him mightily. Gideon, this man who was afraid, this man who didn't believe. Jacob, the schemer. The one who his whole life tried to do things his own way, but God said, I've chosen him. I've called him. I'm letting him in. I think of Samson, the failure. The one who could never quite get victory and a handle on his flesh and the desires of his flesh. One whose eyes were put out and never realized the full potential of his calling. God said, I've chosen him. I've loved him. He's a breach. I'm letting him in. I've included him in my family. I think of Gomer, the prostitute, the wife of Hosea the prophet. The one who just couldn't escape the call and the sound of the city. The one that just couldn't find her way into stability in her lifetime. But yet God said, the way that you love her is the way that I have loved you. And the gomers among us, he's called. I think of the man Zacchaeus, the outcast. The one who nobody else loved. The one who climbed a tree to secretly see if he could just get a glimpse of this Messiah, this Jesus that he'd heard so much about. And yet Jesus stopped front-loaded acceptance as he looked up and he said, Zacchaeus, calling him by name, come down, for I'm going to eat at your house today. And salvation would come to the house of that man that no one else wanted. When I think about my life and your life, those of us that are sitting here, what we have here is we have a room full of Ferez's breaches. Though we didn't deserve it, though we could never earn it, Though what we know God knows about us and what we know about ourselves is that we could never earn this salvation. And that if everybody else in this room could see what we really are, no one in here would think that we deserve it or earn it either. But yet God in His love made a way for you and I to breach into the place of His family. So undeserved. Unearned. Because of His love. What an amazing God we serve. The worship team can come. We'll close at the end of chapter 39 tonight. But on that note, as we do, this morning I was out early and I was walking on the rail trail and just, you know, I don't want to like come across like it was some super spiritual thing. I was really just trying to wake up. But with the Lord, you know. And... As I was walking, um, I, I, I don't know how I even got onto it, but I started to think about, um, you know, just being saved and just what it means to have been saved. And, uh, and I realized that um, it was about 20 years ago, because it's 2018 and it was 1998. And um, kind of the sequence of events that led to, to my salvation is that in May of that year, May of 1998, I fell off of the roof of a building at my college and broke three bones in my face, uh, almost lost sight in the eye, almost died. It was potentially fatal. Uh, spent a week in, in the hospital and out of a coma. Um, and then I spent that summer in recovery. It took a while for my eye to heal and for my vision to come back. Um, and, and by August of that year, uh, I was kind of recovering and getting ready to go back to school. And I went with my best friend at the time, um, and we went on tour with the band Fish for a week, the last week of summer, and it was kind of like this big hurrah. And I didn't, I didn't know the Lord at all. Uh, and really, I was what you would call a waste of life at that time um, of my existence. 
And um, when we, we went on this thing, we spent the week on tour with this band, and it ended up in this place called Limestone, Maine, at this event called the Lemon Wheel. And it was a two-day event where you're just locked into this military Air Force base, and uh, nobody comes in, nobody goes out, and there's really no law. You can just do whatever you want. And it's just two days of this band playing uh, music all day, all night, and you do what you want. And, and as we got into that place, I thought, this is what I have been waiting for my entire life, is finally no rules, no authority, nobody telling me what to do. And what I saw there at the lemon wheel on the first day is I saw um, a 60-something-year-old naked man riding a unicycle. <laughs> I saw people my age with babies uh, strapped to their back that were selling uh, drugs just openly, walking up and down just saying, acid, get acid, sheets, hits, books, you know, and they had their kids on their back. I saw people going around walking their dogs and trying to, their whole sole purpose was to try to find a mate for their dog. You want your dog to mate with my dog and this whole thing. And something happened in me when I saw all of that um, is that God did something. I, I realized that this is where the road I'm on ultimately leads and I don't want to go that way. I don't want to go there anymore. And so um, that Saturday morning of that, it was the, the, the first full day of it, I took all of the dollars that I had left and I turned them into quarters, and I went to a payphone, and I called Georgia, who um, I hadn't talked to in forever long. We had broken up because she had gotten saved uh, two years prior to this event. And I called up Georgia, and I just said, you're never going to believe what I'm seeing here in this place. You know, I just chatted with her for, for a couple minutes, and uh, something happened in me that day. Um, and then, uh, you know, one thing led to another, and within a week, I was born again. Uh, God got a hold of me through that experience, uh, long and short of it. Well, as I was walking this morning and I was just reflecting all that, I realized that we're in the middle of August. And, um, and so just out of pure curiosity, I picked, got my phone out of my pocket and I typed in, what were the dates of the lemon wheel in 1998? And it was August 15th and 16th. And so what I realized is that it was exactly 20 years ago today that I was walking through those aisles and God opened my eyes to see the end of the road that I was on. And in terms of at least this life, the biggest breach that I could ever expect or hope for happened. Because God took a life that was completely worthless, a waste. that was hate, hatred towards God that was completely anti-God. And if I could even begin right now to tell you the things that God has done in my life and for me in the past 20 years... It overwhelms me. I would break down in tears if I even just began to tell you the things that he has done. Blessing upon blessing upon blessing. All of it undeserved. All of it. I deserved to die when I fell off the roof. And God would have been just for me to die because I was as bad as Ur. There was nothing good in my life at that time at all. And because of his grace... He took me in his hand and he saved me and he set my feet in a course that has been nothing but blessing. And so I wonder, maybe tonight you're here. and Maybe you're a younger person and you are that 19-year-old like I was or 20-year-old or early 20-something. And you recognize and you know in your heart that somewhere there's a destination at the end of a road that you're on right now. And that short of some change or some reality, that you're going to end up at that destination. I want you to know 
that if God in any way at all is opening your eyes and saying to you that there is a life in my son and a hope of eternity and there's a blessing and a path and a plan that's beyond anything that you could ask, think, or imagine, I want you to know that it's worth it. From one formerly lost person to another, it's worth it. You can never do for yourself what God is wanting to do for you. For the rest of you, maybe you're in here tonight, you're in, you know the Lord, you say, well, that doesn't apply to me. There have been times over the past 20 years that I've wanted to pull a Judah, not with Tamar, but where I've wanted to check out from my brothers, where I've wanted to go hang out with Hira and Canaan and just get away from the church for a while, get away from the things of God for a while. And by his hand, he's kept me from ever doing that, really. But if you're here tonight and that's even a contemplation in your mind, you know what, I need to take a backseat from the things of God. Or, you know, I want to move away from the things of God in some way. Listen, don't do it. The Bible says that evil communications corrupt good behavior. In other words, bad influences have consequences in our lives. And if you've drawn back from the Lord at all, get back close to the Lord. It's difficult. It's not, this isn't an easy path. The last 20 years haven't been easy. They've been good. Not easy. He's so worth it. Father, we thank you tonight for this word. And, and we just pray, Lord, that you would give us perspective, insight. Thank you for what you did for me this morning, Lord, to just help me to see from from heaven's perspective, what you've done over 20 years and what you can do in 20 years in a life. And I just pray for my brothers and sisters here tonight, Lord. I ask in Jesus' name that by your spirit and by your power, Lord, that you would show each of us right where we are, what you've done in our lives. That you'd remind us the value of our salvation and of our soul. That you'd help us again to appreciate all that you've done for us. And Lord, whatever need might be represented here tonight, this congregation, I ask, Lord, that you would meet that need. If there's anyone here that needs to be saved, Father, that tonight,